Monsters have taken their place among cinematic history, but who are the real monsters? Are they the scaly creatures that haunt our nightmares? Or are they the person you see every day just casually walking down the street? What happens when man outweighs the monster on the screen and creep into our lives and dreams? With our co-hosts Joe Radazzo, Vicky Ray, and Keith Shago, they will uncover who are the real villains as we explore the classic cinema along with some modern greats and find the monster within us. Hello, welcome to the Literary License Podcast. In this M&M, Monsters and Madness, we'll be discussing two films dealing with monsters or madmen. And today we're discussing Deliverance from 1972 and Race with the Devil from 1975. And before we get started, let's find out who's with us. we got one person with us today, it's Joe Randazzo. Hello, Joe. Hey, everyone. And I'm your host, Keith Shago. Before we get started, let's find out what Joe's been up to last time we spoke to you. Um, well, I... Um... Um, two on uh, my second or third weekend on uh, a new blog that I started at uh, Substack, uh, JoeRandazzo.substack.com. Um, I've basically been covering whatever movies I've I've felt like it. It's um, a lot of classic movies, some modern stuff. Uh, I put in my my thoughts on the new Evil Dead movie, uh, Renfield, Super Mario Brothers, and a whole host of. Uh, older films ranging from stuff from the 1930s to you know whenever um, it's been doing pretty well I already got a few paid subscribers but that is an optional thing you don't have to pay for it uh, you can just subscribe for free and I appreciate people who do even that and uh, share share the, uh, the 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 pieces that I write that they like um, so I've been doing one or two posts a day I'm trying to do it every single day because there's already people who paid for annual subscriptions, so I've got to make sure I turn them out, um, uh, turn them out quickly, because if you're paying for it, I feel like I do have to give you something for your money. Um, besides that, works, uh, work. I work at a bar in Chicago, and I, that's starting to get busy again, and thankfully, we're starting to make money again after the, the, the down season. Um, but that's really about it. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be busy the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be doing uh I'm going to be uh, working at a local high school, uh, subbing and proctoring tests. So that's, that's, uh, that's my next two weeks after, after today. Today's my last day off until May 15th, it looks like. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, what do you think of the Evil Dead Rise? I, uh, I actually liked it. If uh, it, it, this might be a little, uh, I don't know if this, it's very similar to the first movie. A similar in tone certainly uh sean stefan who does the batman podcast with us uh has told me he felt it was a little too mean-spirited um if you're looking for the humor of evil dead 2 and army of darkness it's not really uh as humorous as those it stays it shies away from a lot of the humor um comparatively i mean i like that they got out of the cabin in the woods and they moved it into an apartment complex in los angeles and I, I feel like that could open up 
more going forward if they if they do more of these but a lot of the beats are the same you know a lot of the it does do a lot of fan service you still get the chainsaw you get something that's similar to the tree scene in the first movie but it's more of a uh, but it takes place in an elevator um you know you, you, when you get the the, the demon kind of banging out of the cellar in the first one they kind of do that with the demon banging at the door in uh in evil dead rise so there's a lot of stuff that's similar uh tonally it's very much like the first movie where it's got very very little uh laugh out loud humor it does have some but not uh not a great deal um overall i liked it and i thought it was very good the gore is very good there are times where it's really really creepy and it kind of felt at times like like you're a horror like uh like some of the shots kind of looked like kind of looked like wreck by uh, by Paco Plaza. Um, I heard another reviewer compare it to Demons Two, and that that's pretty that's pretty apt because that's a great apartment like Demon Rise movie. Um, overall, I really really enjoyed it though. Um, I enjoyed it more than Renfield. I saw that too, and that uh, Nicholas Cage and Nicholas Holter fantastic and leans into the comedy a lot. I I, I like it, but I didn't love it. I of the two i'd say go see evil dead rise um that's uh, that's really it for those two what uh, what have you been up to keith um well um i think i think the last that last show um will be out soon folks if that's not out already by the time you hear this um but super mario brothers is probably what we saw the 4d I love um, Super X, mario brothers which i loved it I, I i just smiled all the way through and it was fantastic and I laughed and I really enjoyed it. I watched another interesting thing on Sky here, which is on Sky here. And I imagine it's probably on over there on whatever channels. But Super Pets, the animated series about superheroes pets. I, I know of a movie. I didn't know there was a series. Yeah. Um, no, it's a movie. It's, a, it's the movie, not a series. Oh, okay. Uh, the one with uh, The Rock doing the voice of, uh, I think, Superman's dog. Yeah. I really it loved yet. it. Loved it. It was really fun. I just, I laughed all the way through it. It was fantastic. Um, and then, um, but just watching this, and I did watch Beef on Netflix, which Vicky was raving about, which I highly recommend. It's an A24 TV series. Series. So, so with that, you know pretty much what you're going to get. So it's a, kind of a thinking man's. It's not a horror or anything like that, but it's the depths of to what two people will do just to get back at each other, which... I found it, the acting and it's fantastic. The way that's put together is really well, and it never, it never once dips. It just keeps going and going, and it, even even the ending has a has a well paid off. You feel it's well paid off, so that's one that I've so been I, I've been looking forward to seeing. I gotta I gotta get a chance to see it soon. Well, I'm glad that A24 are kind of going into the series front as well because it just gives us something more interesting. Because I know that their horror films are very interesting, and their films are very interesting, and I think Ari Aster is working on a new film, so I can't remember the name of it, but I, I saw something for it coming through. So obviously... it, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Bo is not afraid. I think is that Ari Aster? Yeah, I think so. I've read stuff about people apparently not realizing how uh, how twisted a movie it is. Oh yeah, that is Ari Aster's movie. I've read that people are not realizing how twisted the movie is and actually walking out on it. The thing that's kept me from going to see it, uh, is that 179 minute runtime, which man, I I'll, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. Sean dragged me to see John wick four. And that was, 
that was a long movie and I, I actually enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I've been, uh, I've been kind of like, really like, do, do, does every movie need to be three hours? But Ari Aster, I think has earned it with it, with his other movies. Um, so I remember a couple well, I years prefer ago, the, I do prefer the long cut of Miss Sumner or, or the short cut of it. And I, and I have the long cut. Whenever I watch Miss Sumner, well, I've only watched it three times, but well, I guess three times is quite a lot considering it's only been out for a couple of years. But um, every, when I do watch it, I do watch the long version of it because I do find, I think his films never feel padded. They just feel like they need to breathe. And yeah. that, I think that's what I get from him. Midsummer certainly felt that way. Yeah. And even Hereditary. I mean, I, um, Hereditary is quite a long film, but for me, it doesn't feel long. I'm always kind of like, I think it's because he always has these really strong acting going on at the same time. So you're like in all of what the acting that's going on at the same time as what as it's pressing forward with his story. Well, it's it's also he's really good at 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 setting tension in movies. Like he's able to make you uh, to have things happening where you're you're just sitting there in anticipation, knowing something's coming and you don't know what it is, and you know that it's going to be twisted. Um. Excuse me, and that's what uh, that's that's what it was with Midsummer. Uh, I remember Shanta was the one who got me uh, got me to watch that one finally. She she was just like, "You have to see it. You have to see it. You have to see it. You have to see it." And I finally saw it, and I was like, "All right, well, you were right. This is this is amazing." So um, I will check out Bo is Not Afraid because I really like Ari Aster so far. So um, I don't know if I'm going to see it in theaters. I will uh, I will try to get out to see it, but like I said, this is my my last day off for two weeks. So me seeing anything in the theater right now probably isn't happening uh, for the next couple of weeks. I really wanted to take um, uh, Shanta and her daughter to see Mario Brothers in in, uh, in 4D because there's one theater right in between where we live that uh, it's the same distance for both of us. So I was like, hey, let's see if we could do it. And now we're tr- just trying to figure out when we could do it that I'm not working at one of the two jobs and she's not working and has the kid. And it's, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I just, I just want to see the wonder in in uh, a four-year-old's eyes in a, in 4D watching the Super Mario Brothers movie because I feel like that that would probably that would probably be amazing. I, re- I mean, I really enjoyed it in 4D. I, I would highly recommend it. I, I don't know. Apparently, they're going to start doing horror films in 4D, which should be interesting. I guess it would depend what the what horror films are doing. But um, who's doing it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but it fit mario brothers and this it, i mean I, I know the kids that were in the theater with us were all in all and even the adults were in all as well the whole the whole experience and the chairs rocking and stuff like this the only thing i did find weird that if you're pregnant apparently you can't get in <laughs> well, you can't do 4d if you're pregnant yeah i had no idea i had no idea either maybe so something that was, that was a bit weird. i don't know uh, maybe it's the, the rocking or the the, the sharp bouncing and stuff like that maybe has something to do with that maybe. i don't know but i thought I, but when they gave you this warning thing you're like what and people under like a certain height <laughs> it's like, okay uh yeah I, I i had to look it up it's a minimum age to get into one of those is four years old and zena just yeah. turned four like last week but i we could sit her between us and if if it starts rocking too hard we could kind of reach over and like put our put our hand over her to make sure she's go flying out of the seat to be honest, it didn't rock that hard for the one that I went to. I mean, I've been, I've been in, um, I've been on bus rides going to work. There were a lot more rockier. So. I mean, last year I saw Top Gun Maverick in 4D, and that was a fun experience. And I haven't revisited the movie yet because I'm kind of afraid 
that without the I'm wondering without the 4D does it still hold up? Because I enjoyed the hell out of it in 4D, and I I, I bought the uh, I bought the Blu-ray, and I really really want to throw it on one night, but I'm like I just don't. I'm just worried that it's, it's I'm gonna think I'm gonna look at oh okay well it was the 4D that carried it. Well, that was like me with the first Avatar film. I saw Avatar at the IMAX in 3D. Loved it. Tried to watch. I can't watch that film again. Every time I watch it, it's like it's bloody fern gully. I just can't watch it again. I don't. I know every time I try, it's like. And the thing is, I, I really enjoyed this at the cinema and I at the IMAX 3D. I can't enjoy it now. Why? So it must have been. I must be just. I was probably in all the splendor of it. But I must. But I maybe the storyline just bypassed me. The first time and i was just the maybe that's why i've never been a fan of, of avatar I, i've seen it on uh I, I saw it at home i never saw it in the theater maybe that's why i'm not maybe that's why i don't get it the way everybody else does everybody else raves about it like it's this fantastic thing and i'm just like i was okay well to be honest if you want the storyline fern gully does it in 80 minutes yeah, compared exactly. to the two and a half hours of avatar so uh, but, that's how yeah, i felt so... about it. i was like it's fer- it's fern gully with blue people now i saw top gun at home maverick at home um because i rent it came on tv here like a couple like a month after it appeared at the cinema and i enjoyed it so so you might enjoy it without this special because i thought it was actually a good film and i and i wasn't a huge fan of the first top gun film but actually for this one i've got i've got to watch them back to back because because i left the theater going is this I'm a big proponent of waiting, waiting to waiting for a movie to age a little bit before I say it's better than the previous one. And yeah, I felt coming out that it was a better movie than the first one, but I really have to have to, I want to watch them both back to back again and see like how the rewatchability is. Cause the first one is very rewatchable. It's not the greatest story in the world. It's not the, you know, it's not the end all be all of cinema, but if it's one of those movies where, you know, growing up, if it came on TV, if I'm flipping through channels and I see Top Gun, I'm like, oh, you know what? What the hell? Yeah, it's Saturday afternoon. It's raining out. I'm not doing anything. I'll sit here and watch Top Gun. It's very 80s as well. It is very Top 80s. And I probably should watch it again because I haven't seen it since Quentin Tarantino said it was a gay movie. So I probably should watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Because now it has those now that has those kind of undertones given to me by good old QT. Maybe I should watch it again and see see if I see if I see the same thing he saw in it because it bypassed me when I went and saw it at the cinema at the first time around. So, but maybe rethink like a virgin. I want what his rent and reservoir talks. <laughs> you want to be fucked really hard like a virgin. That's what it's about. <laughs> she wants it to hurt hurt like it did the first time. <laughs> Uh, so you enjoyed so you enjoyed the mario brothers and you enjoyed um uh super pets so that's i've heard i've heard nothing but bad things about super pets so i never watched it maybe i'll give it a shot it's probably on hbo max here i i mean i didn't go i mean i didn't go to the movie theater maybe if i paid for it might have felt differently about it but i just i just put it on because it's like okay i got an hour and a half before i go to bed i don't want to go to bed too early so i'll put it on and that'll get me to bed about 12 o'clock um sat here with ferris and put it on and I just smiled. I was laughing and I was really enjoying it. So I don't know. Like it's on HBO you know, Max here. So yeah, it'll be a free watch for me. And it doesn't look to be that long. Wait, what was the runtime on that? Because it 90 was, uh, maybe. Oh no, it's 105. 
Well, it didn't feel like 105 to me. So and that's that's great. If it doesn't feel like 105 minutes, that's fantastic. And they kind of they do take the piss out of Batman and Superman and all the other ones as well, which is quite fun. I mean, the Batman the Batman thing is so, they take the piss out of him so much; it's really funny. Which maybe that's why a lot of people don't like it is they don't like the piss being taken out of Batman and Superman because you got all these like real huge fanboys of those those mm-hmm. movies. Maybe they're just like, oh, don't how dare you make fun of it. It takes the piss out of like the Lego stuff does, or like the Lego Batman stuff does. So it's got Lego that Batman kind of humor is fantastic. I, I love the movie. And that's the same director as Renfield, by the way. So it's Renfield works more as like a parody of Dracula than like, you know, a serious uh, sequel or serious movie. So I think it's really hard to put Nicolas Cage in a serious movie nowadays. So it seems like. So. I yeah. Well, I mean, we, we covered um, uh, the color out of color space, space. And he's very yeah. good in that. He's very good at Mandy. He's very yeah. good at pig. Yeah. He's very good in that as well. So he, he could do it. It's just, yeah, everybody now expects Nicolas Cage the meme. Yeah. And that's what he likes to deliver, you know, a lot more. He'll do like his little, you know, acting piece and, you know, get great reviews. And then he'll do like 10 movies in succession. <laughs> I didn't know until recently. He's a huge classic horror fan. Like apparently yeah. uh, somebody introduced him to John Carpenter and they did like this this interview together and they were just talking the whole time about like universal monsters and val luton and hammer films and and nosferatu and all this stuff and so apparently this was a passion project for cage too so uh, like i said I'm, I'm fine with it i don't think it's anything uh groundbreaking i think it's 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 a fun little movie don't think i would like hard. to see yeah i would like to see um i like someone to do a, like a serious conversation with nicholas cage about his uncle yeah that would be and see what kind of see what kind of influences are there because you know when you hear about he's very into classics anyway whether it's classic music or classic movies and stuff like this and it'd be kind of interesting to see how much of an influence his uncle had on him as well it very so, well could be hey this is my academy award-winning uncle who's introducing me to all these all these movies so it could it could yeah. be it could be one of those he, uh, he never really talks too much about that or i mean everyone knows but you never hear either one talk about the other to his credit he's never used it as far as i know as far as i can tell uh well although he did go by nicholas coppola in the beginning he's he, he like yeah he never name drops and goes hey yeah my uh you know my my uncle directed uh two of the greatest movies ever made never brings but, that up he did appear in one of his uncle's films, didn't he? Peggy Sue uh, got Peggy married. Peggy Sue got married. Yeah, he was in. He was yeah. the. Um, I think he was like the rebellious, uh, the rebellious guy who. Uh, was that who he was? It's been a while since I've seen it. He's the one that's married to Kathleen Turner. Oh, was he okay? Was and they kind they kind of aged. It's kind of weird because they aged him up, kept her at her age, and then when they went back in time, they kind of like put him at his regular age and put her and then aged her down. So it's kind of like this weird kind of thing that they did with them. Yeah, so, it's been a while since but, I've seen Peggy Sue got married, but yeah, it's the only thing I remember about his performance is that he was still doing that kind of Valley Guy kind of acting at that time, like in the eighties, because he was doing he was being doing a lot of that kind of stuff around that time, sort of was thing. He, was he kind of the badass of uh, when when they went back to to the younger days? Was he kind of like the badass yeah. rebellious kid? That's what I was thinking. Okay, yeah. So I was I, I wasn't off on that. He always played the rebellious yeah. first kid when he was younger. Even in Valley Girl, he was kind of the rebellious kind of. 
Wild at Heart. Yeah, yeah Wild at Heart. Um, no one understands me. <laughs> even even though I'm trying to be Elvis. <laughs> so much so I'll marry his daughter. Yay. <laughs> but oh guess we shouldn't talk about his daughter. That's pretty sad now. On that note, let's go to Deliverance, which is a American thriller film produced and directed by John Borman and starring John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox, with the latter two making their feature film debuts. The screenplay was adapted by James Dickey, who also appears as the sheriff, um, from the 1970 novel of the same name. The film was critical and box of success, earning three Academy Award nominations and five Golden Globe Award nominations. Widely acclaimed as a landmark picture, the film is noted for a music scene near the beginning with one of the city men playing dueling banjos on guitar with a banjo-picking country boy. It is also notorious for its brutal depiction of a sodomized rape before which the victim was compelled to squeal like a piggy by his attacker. In 2008, Deliverance was selected by Preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And it's one of the only films that all four actors would do their own stunts without any insurance. So what we'll do is we'll cut to the trailer of Deliverance and be right back. Where are you going, city boy? We'll find it. It ain't nothing but the biggest river in the state. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. Ed Gentry, he runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dee. Lewis Medlock has real estate interests, talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, he's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual funds. Where you going? All right, I'm looking. These are the men who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river. there anywhere watching us right now we ain't gonna be so nice and hard to follow dragging a corpse Lewis, I'm gonna 
John Boorman's film of James Dickey's explosive best-selling novel. Welcome back to the Dyson's podcast. I'm about Deliverance from 1972. So, Joe, what are your thoughts on Deliverance? Um, I, I had seen this before, so this is a rewatch for me, but this was the first time that, like, I was, you know, more more zeroed in on what was going on. Um, the thing that stuck out to me is I'm like, wow, this is so good. How did this not win any any Academy Awards that I can remember? And then I went and looked at the year, and I was like, oh, that's right, The Godfather. <laughs> so of course it's not you're not beating uh, that juggernaut uh really really good really really tense really well acted uh absolutely fantastic movie um uh, the ned Beatty uh scene is still uh still painful and cringeworthy to watch it's I don't mean cringeworthy in like the, the bad form of cringy that people are, that, that people associate with the word now, but what happens to him actually makes you cringe. Um, I mean, uh, that still doesn't explain it. Cringy is in negative as in not good. It's the film itself is very good. What happens to Ned Beatty is very, very rough to watch. Um, yeah, and actually, I didn't know until now they all did their own stunts. So I'm amazed nobody got uh, none of these guys ended up uh, getting uh, getting killed or hurt. <laughs> but oh, they uh, got hurt. I think um, Burt Reynolds um, broke collarbone. Someone else broke an arm. Um, John Voight, when he's climbing up the mountain, did his own climbing up the mountain. Oof! Without a harness. That's one thing I would never do. <laughs> <laughs> They're all very dedicated. So, uh, yeah, and all four men became uh, became stars. So you know they they were recognized for their uh, you know their their hard work on this movie, um, and the dueling banjo scene, of course, sticks out to me uh, at the at the beginning. And it's it's actually you do find yourself kind of getting into it like the like the local does, where you almost start clapping like like he does. Yeah, but yeah, one of. Uh, one of the better films we watched on uh, you know for this podcast so far absolutely love it i think the way that it was filmed is just magnificent but i also like the social commentary that's going on with it as well which i really like the simple fact that you know as you know modern times are encroaching into these you know communities and stuff like this and basically it's like throwing them all underwater is kind of you know basically what's happening and how modern man comes into the community and thinks that they know better than everyone else and this whole thing that we are superior over you and i thought that was very very well in touch but i also like the role reversals that we got as well because you got the burt, burt reynolds character and he's coming in and he's like this macho man and of course once he gets hurt then what we get is john voight overtaking that role by taking his shirt off and then putting on the vest and he's almost like copying the burt reynolds but with a more sensible tone to it and then you got the Ned Beatty um, character switching and everyone's characters just slowly turning as the, as the movie goes on. And I thought the character study of how these four men work to, you know, together was very, very interesting. You know, yeah. and especially with the Burt Reynolds character, you know, him being so hard, it's like, you know, get fat. I don't want to work with, you know, be in the boat with fatty anymore and so on and so forth. And then when he gets hurt, I mean, he becomes worse than Ned Beatty does at a, at any point in the film, you know, when he breaks his femur. And you're kind of going, 
this is very interesting how this all turns out. Well, but yeah, I also uh, like that. I'd also like the juxtaposition that after it's all over and they got the you know the cops and you know and you know they go back to their home, and then then Beatty goes, "I don't want to. I don't want to see you for a long time." And then you know that they're all going to be haunted by this experience for the rest of their lives. And, and it's kind of weird because you start off with Burt Reynolds being kind of a main character, but by the end of it, he's now sidelined. Yeah, and John and that was interesting as well. Lead, yeah. Uh, the, the, other, the other thing is, yeah, you, you mentioned um, John Voight's character being the more sensible one, yet when he's up on top of the mountain and he wakes up that morning and he sees the hunter he immediately just assumes it's the guys who attacked them and just shoots at them, which, you know, again, is part of that character arc where he he does change a little bit because the whole time he does seem to be the one who, uh, who does seem sensible, but yeah, he Mm. does kind of start to start to turn as more things happen. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, when I said that, like everything about who you are is just, you know, an amalgamation of everything that you've been through. And these guys are put through the ringer in this movie, you know, um, between everything that's going on. Um, and yeah, you're right. At the beginning, they do, they do come off kind of dickish when they're, uh, uh, when they're uh, at the, uh, at the gas station with the, you know, the, the little boy pick, uh, you know, picking on the banjo and they do kind of talk down to the, uh, to the guy that runs the station and they do kind of, you know, while the little boy also who, you know, maybe isn't socially as as aware, you know, he he has his way of communicating, which is just, you know, plucking away on the banjo. When they go for the handshake, the little boy just kind of just kind of backs off and like, no, 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 like, I, I don't know you. Um, but the way that you're talking down to this boy is I think that was his father running the gas station. The way you're talking mm. down to this man, th- this kid has no reason to want to shake your hand. Mm. Like he, like he, I could get why he could kind of see you as someone who is, um, uh, who's a little intimidating. Yeah, and the whole thing, even like when they're getting like, can you, can you get? I mean, we, I mean, we later find out that one of the men who accosts the Ned Beatty character and the John Voight character is one of the men who is moving the cars for them. Yeah. But even the way that they, you know, the way that are spoken to about, you know, oh, we'll do it for 50, you know, we'll do it 40. And then and the talking down at the whole time. And so, so which is kind of weird because you're kind of wondering, it's like, if maybe if they treated them with the same level of respect as they would anyone else, maybe this not might not have happened. It wouldn't have happened in the first place, maybe. Yeah, that's precisely. Yeah, I mean. That, that's kind of what they're doing in this movie is they're going into this small town like hey we're from the big city we know better than you we're gonna we're gonna talk down to you countrified rubes and i'm not saying uh anybody deserves to be raped so uh or nor am i condoning or saying i understand it but yeah i could see i i could see the um I could see the anger on these guys who were like, why are you coming down into my territory, talking down to me, to- talking to me like I'm like I'm some idiot who doesn't understand anything. And another thing, I guess, what you know, which I also realized, I mean, this is this deliverance is kind of a weird thing for us, because when we were 14 years old, we had to read this book in school. And then they showed us this movie when we were 14. 
you know, and I, you know, I, and I had to sit there and say, you know, when you're 14 years old, for the next two months, we kept saying to each other, "Squeal like a piggy boy." You sure got a pretty mouth. <laughs> not really, not really understanding what we were saying, sort of thing. But, um, but now, now viewing this, you know, you know, here I am, you know, 40 years later, and like kind of viewing it, it's like it's a lot of it's weird how all these different things you you start picking up out of out of the situation and you know another thing i thought to myself was like why they're talking down to these the locals and yes they're they are inbred and yes these communities are so far back into the woods that you know that there's not a lot of mixing of blood that goes on in these communities you know and you know is that is that does that make them stupider or worse off than we are I don't know, because at the end of the day, when you don't have much schooling and you don't have much movability and you, and the thought of actually leaving this community to go out into the big world, what are you going to do? Work at McDonald's? You know, what kind of life you're going to have then or whatever. So the, however way they sustain their life is the way they sustain their life. But, you know, but to have these people from outside kind of use them as something to laugh at. But at the same time, these people are also being uprooted and misplaced to God knows where because that whole area is going to be flooded because they're making a dam so modern world can have electricity. Mm-hmm. So so in that way, there's also that, um, you know, the insensibility of the four main characters basically not even taking that into account. Even though we hear Burt Reynolds before, you know, with, with the black screen, before the credits even come up, talk about this is what's happening. And so that means they all know. You know, and then the four, and the, and the and the men. You know, I think you hear John Voight, and I'm not quite sure if you hear any um, Ned Beatty or Ronnie Cox's character. I think Ronnie Cox is more of the vegetarian, liberal, free free thinker. He seems to be a bit more in that group than the and then and then I think Burt Reynolds is probably the other end of the scale. So they're the two ends of the scales as far as their political beliefs are concerned. But, you know, John Voigt goes, well, you know, you know, we need, you know, we need progress. We need electric lights. We need, you know, look at the progress that will happen because of this. But then I, re- then I remember, like, after the end of the movie, I was thinking about that and thinking that the progress is not going to be for this community that's going to be uprooted. It's going to be for us. The progress is for the modern man. It's not going to be a progression for these people. Not sure what, because you, and, and it's quite interesting because they never tell you where they're moving them to. Where, where are they moving these communities? I mean, you see them digging up the dead bodies and moving the bodies and moving the church and everything like that, but where are they moving them to? Are they moving them to a suburb somewhere? Are they moving them further back into the woods? Are they moving them to a gated community? Or are they moving them to an Amish community? It's really, it's really hard to figure out. You know, so, so they never really tell you what the, the plight of these people are going to be, which I found interesting as well. Well, and it's it's almost like yeah, we don't care is is kind of the or the the four main characters don't care, is mm-hmm. kind of, kind of, kind of the, the vibe that you, that you get from it because like you said, Ned Beatty is talking about you know we you know uh, we, we we gotta we gotta get lights we gotta progress as society, and on one hand I do agree with him on that, but at the same time, how much progress can you have if you're leaving certain people behind? And that's, and that's certainly a real, uh, real dilemma for these people, um, for these kind of backwoods people. And it's, you still kind of, you know, see it today when, uh, you, you know, you get like, um, people say, Oh, we gotta, we gotta, 
most recently with AI. AI is, yes, it's going to move things to the future, but what's going to happen to actual creators, people who are actually creating something? Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're going to go by the wayside and everything's going to be computer generated. Um, we hear it all the times with, um, uh, with certain voting blocks because um, while they might be more liberal in some areas, they're also like, hey, but what happens to all the coal jobs? And do we just ignore them and move on without them? I, I've heard people say, oh, well, let's train them to do something else. In some cases, these people have been doing it 20, 30 years. They don't know anything else. Um, well, so, you can take yeah. that with the regular shopping at a supermarket. I don't know what it's like there, but in this country, I mean, all the supermarket checkout lines are going. They're all self-service now. A lot of them are here, too. Not as, not as uh, uh, like I'd say, like the supermarket I normally go to, it's like six or seven regular aisles and you have one aisle that has like eight self-checkout machines so yeah what's going to happen to those people who are bagging your groceries even mcdonald's i remember like mcdonald's and i know this is a weird thing to create it to but mcdonald's here basically you know i you know i didn't work at mcdonald's but i worked at uh, a sonic <laughs> it's almost okay. the same thing um you know back in when i was in college um but the thing is you would flip burgers and then you work your way to the front cashier. Nowadays in this, in the McDonald's in this country is that you go to a screen, you pick out what you want to buy, you put your card in that pays for it. And then you wait for your number to call. Yeah. So you don't order at the counter anymore. So, and they think there's other like, God, McDonald's, there's not even, you know, you go to McDonald's now, you say, do, you, do you progress in just packing food? Is that what your progression is? Yeah. It's you know not what really, I mean? It's not really progress, is it? not really a lot of and restaurants here started to to do the uh you know tablet on you know not uh, either the tablet or the uh the qr code on the table you can just order all your own stuff and then you're still expected to tip out a server yeah so that's, server what, that's what's here in a lot of places as well so and the worst thing about it is when you're doing the qr service and you order and then your bill comes through on your phone and then you go to pay your bill and then you have to go to your app on your phone for your to your bank to confirm it on your, on your yeah. app and then you, and then you try to bounce back and it bounces back and the screen's no longer there and you're like i, I haven't dealt with that yet um yeah. but uh, you know and as somebody who you know works in a bar what's going to happen to people like me when that becomes the norm are we just going it's just going to be well Sorry, kid, you're done. You know, you, you've been you've been doing this for you know 10, 15 years, and now you got nothing, you know, you got nothing to go for it. You got nothing to show for or it. Or do now. they pay or they or you keep your job and they just pay you less? Or you no, you're no longer a server and they pay you minimum wage, which is less than I would make in tips. Precisely. So that, yeah. You know, same like going back to supermarket, you started off as stocking shelves, and the hope is that one day you'd be a cashier and you know make a bit more money. Not that you know it's a huge rate, you know. Then from cashier, you normally can, if you're lucky, you might become manager, but you normally have to go through that progression. But if that progression is not there, so basically they probably don't have to pay you more than a, a stock shelfer. Yeah. So where's your progression? Where's your where's your need to do better so you can do better to get my to my go upwards? So exactly. So it's something to really think about. When you when yeah. you well, yeah when you eliminate the 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 ability to to actually move forward yeah it's gonna it's going to create this the stagnation in the middle because okay this is as far as i can progress well i'm barely making ends meet 
So what am I supposed to do? And that's yeah. when we start getting into, you know, certain uh, certain cities have started the universal basic income thing where it's like, no, we're going to we're going to give you a thousand dollars every month. You just work for whatever else you need. This is to take care of like basic necessities. Just a thousand dollars a month doesn't take care of anything. Uh, it'll help. Certainly it'll help, uh, you know, with uh, help, help towards your rent and towards your groceries. But what, what, what's going to end up happening is it's gonna, is prices are going to rise again. So it's it's right now we're, well, we, uh, have, we're we have something like that in this country in London for instance if you're within the M25 within 25 is this um expressway that circles around London. So if you're inside the M25 you get a thing called London waiting gets added onto your wages. But at the same time as what you're saying is the prices go up and stuff like this your London waiting doesn't really go up. But what also happens though you start thinking you, you think of this as part of your income and of course once you think of this as part of your income that if something happens and what what they're finding now is they're taking jobs inside the m25 and moving them just outside the m25 and then london waiting goes so you're doing the same job and getting two thousand pounds less yeah a year that's, or whatever that's and that's what they'll do with the that's and that's what they'll do with the universal credit sort of thing. Well, basically, it's like, well, the companies be like, well, what we can do is we move you slightly outside the city. We'll have your job there. So now you might have to commute, but and then we don't. You might be missing this amount. But by that time, you're so used to this amount being part of your paycheck, it's going to be really hard to try to, you know, economize this bulk of money that you're used to being part of a monthly spend. Plus, now you're commuting further, so you're spending more money on the commute. So it, it precisely, and that's basically yeah. That's 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 kind of what this movie is kind of talking about is what happens to that uh, that segment of the population that kind of just gets left behind, and it does it really really effectively. I found another interesting thing about Deliverance this time around is that I kind of thought of the country people as the villains of the piece. Watching it now, I don't think of them as the villains of the piece. I didn't think of them as then even the guys who were, um, you know going to sodomize ned or whatever like that it's, it's kind of funny i don't i don't i didn't see them as evil i saw them as people who shouldn't be doing what they shouldn't be doing sort of thing i'm not quite sure why they were doing this i do think it has something to do with you know because when they're getting the canoe and those four guys are slagging them off and making fun of them. And, the, and you see the three guys who are moving their cars behind the bushes, listening to them before they back away to move the cars. So, I mean, did they deserve that have to happen? No, they didn't deserve no. it. But at the same time, I don't, I, they didn't come across as the villains. And the whole thing about, um, and then I, no, something else I noticed, which is quite interesting. Oh, the Ronnie Cox character. Oh, he was shot. But then they go, we can't find a bullet hole on him. We can't find where he was shot. So basically he went into the water because of shock. He wasn't shot. So this yeah. other person may not have shot them. They might not, because you don't hear any gunshots or anything. Well, yeah, when they go I, the was, I was going to say, I, I just thought that was just, that that was just them being paranoid at that point. Because I, I never, yeah. I never thought even for a second that he was shot. Because when you look at him before that, he does look like somebody who has been completely traumatized and is in a state of shock. Yeah. So. So yeah, um, was I uh, was I gonna say right before that though? Uh, as far as the, I, I still see the two guys who are actually raping Ned Beatty. I definitely see them as the villains. Um, but the, they're I mean at least for that time period where it's happening, uh, 
as far as the villains in this kind of there isn't really like i think a set villain i mean they just kind of become paranoid and yeah. that causes them to make a lot of mistakes it's kind of man versus nature in some respects and man versus himself and in, in some others because a lot of the a lot of the issues that they come across i mean who knows if those guys were going to rape them anyway who, who the hell knows but well we're not quite sure if they're going to murder they're going to kill them well they, yeah they but might I, kill them too yeah well, I, the thing is, we don't know if they're going to. We, I, because I, it, it's kind of weird, like watching it this time around. I thought to them, like, are they teaching a lesson? Like, like, you look down on us, we'll show you. And then would they let them go, or were they going to kill them? Because they must have known that the other two, they had the other two people with them. So what? So it's really kind of hard to figure out what. The, the the whether the reasoning was is like because they're making fun of them it's like well we'll show you how dare you make fun of us is that the reason why this happened or were they just out to just basically you know they saw these two men and just fuck with us for the sake of it because you're never quite sure really and it's only that and it's only that one line where um the guys said that both of them didn't come home so now you have to assume that this other guy that was shot might have been the other guy with the shotgun that ran off but you're but they never make that clear if that's the same guy but if the other guy didn't come back obviously it might have been i don't know or it could just be he ran off because he's like oh shit they killed him they're they're uh they're either going to kill me or they're going to go to the authorities and report that i did this and then i and then my life is over here so i'm just going to move on to the next town Yes. Be. So you're never quite sure of the situation there either. So it's it's quite an interesting. There's a lot of unanswered questions and there are answered questions, which I that's what I quite like about deliverance. Yeah, and uh, you know, John Borman, uh you know, it's kind of a mixed bag as a director because he's you've got deliverance. Um, and I think he also did Excalibur, right? Excalibur. He did, but, um, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Zardoz and Exorcist 2, uh, which <laughs> not exactly two of the most well-regarded movies ever. And he did that after this, which uh, yeah. ma- makes me think he, you know, he maybe had a little bit of clout and was uh, was able to do whatever job he wanted. And he decided to go do Zardoz and that did not do well. And then maybe uh, Warner was like, "Okay, let's reel it in a little. We lost some money on this. You you need to you need to direct one of our better one of our bigger franchises now. Here's Exorcist Two: The Heretic, and that didn't go well either." <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Borman and Dickie got in a fist fight over Borman was changing the script as they were filming, and because Dickie wrote the script based on his book, oh, they got in that. a fist fight, and um, um, um Dickie quite a big a lot bigger than borman and broke two of his teeth oh, but wow. they but borman never pressed charges against dickie i had no idea that that had happened huh. and another thing i found interesting is that james dickie in my mind looks totally different but then when i found out he was the cop in this it's like I, I didn't realize that until you said it uh at the uh, at the at the outset yeah. here i didn't realize that, that was actually that was actually james dickie but but yeah, he's a uh, kind of a kind of a big guy. Yeah, <laughs> not not somebody I'd want to get into a fist fight with. I mean, the film is infamous for the cost cutting by the studio in effect to kill it, <laughs> and having the actors perform their own stunts, as a John Voight notably climbing the cliff himself, 
Reynolds requested to have one scene reshot with himself in the canoe rather than a dummy as it trembled over a real waterfall. Reynolds recalled his shoulder and his head hitting rocks and floating downstream with all his clones torn off. Then waking up with director Borman at his bedside, Reynolds asked, how did it look? And Borman said, it looked like a dummy falling over a waterfall. Beatty almost <laughs> drowned and, Re and Re Reynolds cracked his tailbone. I think I, I regarding think I, the courage. Go ahead. Yeah. It says, regarding the courage of the four men actors in the movie forming their own sons without insurance protection, Dickie was quoted as saying all of them had more guts than a burglar. And a nod to their stunt performing audacity early in the movie, Lewis says, insurance, I never been insured in my life. I don't believe in insurance. There's no risk, which was added <laughs> before they shot all that. Uh, the funny thing is, I think I had heard that Burt Reynolds uh, Borman story with how did it look? It looked like a dummy going over, uh, going over, uh, you know. I think I'd heard that before, but it's actually kind of funny when, when you say that Burt Reynolds hit his head on a lot of them because he has that line of dialogue uh, where I think he's telling Ned Beatty, when Ned Beatty's like, what if we fall over? He goes, well, uh, make sure if anything hits the rocks, it's not your head. <laughs> so, it's actually kind of ironic that it ended up happening to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite funny. I mean, I mean, this is the, I mean, I think this is another film that we probably should mention that actually rocketed Burt Reynolds to be a movie star. This oh, is yeah. the movie that did it. I yeah absolutely well Burt Reynolds ended up being the biggest star out of the four by far. I know Smokey and the Bandit was uh, was what like three four years later, and that that probably propelled him even more. And John Voight was coming off what Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, yeah. John Voight so, uh, did he win the Oscar for that? Or was he only nominated? I know it won no, Best Picture. He, yeah, I'm not sure if it was nominated. I know. I think Justin Hoffman was nominated as well, wasn't they? Yeah, I think they both were. I think both of them. Were. I, I don't know if either one of them won though. Yeah, it might be because they were against each other. Sometimes those films where they're against each other kind of cancels each one out, doesn't it, sometimes? Yeah, yeah. It didn't happen this year, though, with uh, uh, Best Supporting Actress with um, Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, the, the, other, the other woman from, uh, uh, from Everything Everywhere All at Once, although I felt, the, uh, I felt the other woman probably had the better performance, but I feel like everyone just kind of galvanized around Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, when is she ever going to get it again? So let's, let's, let's give it to her. Yeah. But that, that, in that, that case, I, they didn't cancel each other out. I mean, nothing against Jamie Lee Curtis, because I do like Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis's performance, especially when you look at Knives Out and some of the other performances she did. But I think because of her performance in the first reboot of Halloween or the, the new Halloween films, when you look at the first one there and then, and the second one and how her acting was, the critics were loving her. It kind of made sense that she would win the supporting actress. They're never going to give she's it to her for go Halloween, yeah. Precisely. So I think it was one of those. And plus, she's part of a legacy, isn't she? She's part of the Janet Lee, Tony Curtis legacy Curtis, as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's part of it too. And she's, you know, she's beloved. You know, she's she's uh, beloved for a long time. But yeah, it's kind of a shame that you'll get these uh, these people who are known for these great performances in, in horror movies getting an Oscar later on for something else that maybe wasn't as good, but it's like, well, we really wanted to give it to you for the reboot of Halloween four years ago because you were fantastic in that as like this traumatized yeah. woman. But we couldn't we couldn't give an Oscar to Halloween uh, nine or ten at this point? What, no, nine. We couldn't give a we couldn't give an Oscar to the ninth Halloween movie, so we're gonna give it to you for this. She probably mm. could have gotten it for Knives Out too. I'm trying to remember who who she was up against mm. that year, but she was fantastic in Knives Out. Mm. 
Yeah, she's very good in that. So, um, I think another thing to point out is Ronnie Cox, because Ronnie Cox, after this, he did a lot of TV roles. I think he did Apple's Way, and he did, and he'd always played like the dad figure. But then ten years later, that would all change with the RoboCop in it. <laughs> yeah, he's like the evil. <laughs> Well, yeah, he would be the evil. Yeah, I suppose he would, he would be the villain in RoboCop as opposed to, uh, what's his name? The the other older guy whose name escapes me right now, the Irish actor. Mm. Yeah. Well the, the, well, the Irish actor, um, the main God. guy, I mean, he, he kind of was kept in the dark. I mean, he comes out more of the, the evil end, guy, yeah. the second one. And the second and the second one, he comes out as more the evil guy. But you got the other guys like, you know. <laughs> things so was like Ronnie, and after that, Ronnie Cox became like the evil kind of character. Ned Beatty's character, I've noticed, is like he was quite fumbly there for a while because after I think after this, like five years later, you do what Superman wouldn't it? Yeah, like, he would he would be Otis, but uh, Daniel Hurley he was the uh, the other actor in RoboCop we were, we were talking about. Uh, yeah, he would become the yeah he. I guess I always associated him with kind of being the bumbling oaf because of uh, because mm-hmm. of him playing Otis in superman yeah. even during uh even while i was watching deliverance at one point uh sean was uh was in the living room uh he was doing something else he'd occasionally look up and i remember at one point we choked about otis uh, otis otisberg otisberg you know that whole uh that whole thing with gina it's just a just a tiny little property mr luthor <laughs> fantastic but i've always associated him with being this kind of uh this you know, this kind of oafish character and you know maybe he doesn't really deserve that i remember a couple years ago he had a guest appearance as a judge who was starting to suffer dementia on an episode of law and order and he did a fantastic job playing it. um and his uh, his secretary or the court stenographer who really loved him uh uh loved him was kind of uh cueing him in as to what was going on so that it did so that you couldn't tell that he was losing his mind but uh either sam waterston or linus roach i don't remember who it was at this point was kind of picking up the cues that he's not really all there and um and, and kind of exposed him and he played a really sympathetic role in that and i think because i had associated him with you know with otis for so long that when i saw that i was like wow ned Beatty's really got the chops it's i, I never knew it was the Ned Beatty go on to be like, you know how like um, Burt Reynolds films would have, he would have like his key players come back and, you know, Dom DeLuise. I think Ned Beatty was part of that because I think he did White Lightning with um, uh, Burt he was Reynolds. In a, he was in a few of them, uh, but even then a lot of the movies where I did see him pop up, I saw him pop up in like that, uh, that early 90s version of Captain America. And again, he was kind of a bumbling oaf there. Um, I think a lot of the movies that I saw him in, he was kind of, you know, the bumbling yeah kind of the bumbling oaf yeah, i wonder if superman might have ruined him in, in that respect yeah well he did the life and times of judge roy bean the thief who came to dinner white lightning which is nashville oh he's in nashville as well i forgot he was in nashville but i think even that's before president. superman yeah network yeah he's great in network oh. um but yeah, and again, that's pre-Superman. I think I think Superman kind of ruined Ned Beatty. Yeah, it looks like that because after that, then he did like the Incredible Shrinking Woman, Superman Two, The Toy. Then he did a couple more. Um, yeah, what you call it? Uh, a couple more Burt Reynolds films. Then he did The Big Easy as well, which I think he played a 
kind of a sleazy person in that with Dennis Quaid and Eileen Birkin. Never Eileen seen Birkin? Easy, so I don't know. Very good film. I'm back to school with um, Rodney Dangerfield. Back to being. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so yeah, it, it looks like he did a lot more of that. But yeah, for a minute, I, I wonder because he, when I was watching that beat, he's like he must have had a good relationship with Burt Reynolds because he started appearing in a, some Burt Reynolds films, and Burt Reynolds liked to work with the same people over and over and over. So, I feel like a lot of people do. Yeah. Because I think Burt Reynolds started producing. There's a really good documentary on Amazon about Burt Reynolds. It's very, very interesting. I haven't seen it. What's uh, what's it called? Do you know? Uh, I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure if you put Burt Reynolds into Amazon Prime, that they'll come up with a documentary, and it talks about him filming his last movie, and you know, and how he had to take control of his films and how he decided that he wanted to do the Southern good old boy kind of films because he knew that's where his audience was, which would rocket him to being a box office. Absolutely makes sense. Well, I guess before we move on to the next film, how many stars would you give Deliverance? Oh, five. And I, I, I honestly think if it wasn't for the fact that uh, it, it ran into the juggernaut that was the Godfather, this probably what what else was nominated that year? This probably would have been, uh, I'd say, the best movie in 1972 if it wasn't for that. I'll, I'll look it up real quick. Uh, Deliverance. 1972, nominated for three Oscars. Oh, well, Cabaret. Uh, okay. So uh, the other oh. two films are The, the Emigrants and Sounder, uh, but it was up against The Godfather and Cabaret. So I guess th- those are the three that would be. But yeah, nobody was beating The Godfather that year. So maybe if The Godfather ba- wasn't there, it had a 50-50 shot. I think Bob Fosse. Did, didn't Bob Fosse win one for Cabaret? For uh, it might I think director went to Coppola that year. Oh, with Coppola, because I know Godfather Two. You got it. Oh no, director. No, yeah, you're right. Director went to went to Bob Fosse for Cabaret. Yeah, you're right. Maybe Coppola won it for two. Uh, Yeah, he won the second one. So Borman was direct was uh, up for best director. So and I think Joe, I think Joe Gray got it for best supporting actor. I think for Cabaret. Joe Gray did win for Cabaret. Yeah. Yeah. No, were, oh wow the god well yeah there's the, maybe the godfather canceling itself out because you had al pacino james conn robert duvall all uh-huh. getting nominated marlon brando winning Lawrence olivia and michael uh michael came for sleuths this not so wow all four of the main actors were shut out yeah no nominations for acting for any of this it was uh borman is the director and uh uh nominated for best picture but that uh one more what's the other one oh i was nominated for best film editing but did not mm-hmm. uh did not win any of them but yeah I think well to I- be honest i i can't see how you could pick a best actor out of it i think when you get a film that's that strong we have it's a bit like i call it like the steel magnolias effect we have all these people have all giving these strong performances it's really hard to pick can't pick one out of this line up when you got an ensemble piece like this i mean yeah that's that's the same thing that happened the same year with the godfather because you had pacino duvall and uh james Kahn all getting nominated <laughs> so yeah what are you gonna do 
so yeah i i think had you know I I didn't realize yeah it was same year's cabaret so yeah if the Godfather wasn't there it had a fifty fifty shot but yeah you know, I don't know if cabaret might have still beaten it um, mm. but it's a strong movie and I'd say one of one of the better one of the best movies we've ever covered here so um, absolutely five stars how about you dude I am gonna give it a solid five um, this is a movie that when I was putting the year together um, I didn't know whether to put it into book the screen because the book is fantastic as well I highly recommend reading the book or to put this but because there a lot of what's in the books in the movie so that's the reason why we didn't book the screen and I moved it to here so but um, it's a solid five all the way around great performances it still lives up to the day it's filmed beautifully it's one of the most beautifully filmed films it definitely is that it looks amazing the cinematography is fantastic and there's a timeless quality about it as well, which is, you know, it doesn't feel 70s. It doesn't feel dated. Even even when they pull up in their cars, it doesn't feel dated. The only thing that feels dated is they don't have mobile phones. That's the only thing that seems to be missing, you know, to make it a modernized film. And it just it just seems to be as timeless. And I think it would be timeless 50 years from now. So, so I, I give it a that. solid five. I mean, it's already been 50 years since it came out. So, yeah. And we're, we're talking about it like, you know, it's a, it's a film that could could play well today. And a lot of the problems that we had socially uh, are still here with us now. Mm. And I think, um, you know, it's quite funny to see Deliverance because what we would get after Deliverance is horror films dealing with modern people going like wrong turn and all the other stuff, taking, taking Deliverance and like running in this other direction, well, which is quite interesting. Immediately after, even immediately after yeah. you have... Um, uh texas chainsaw massacre the very next year and that's definitely the ultimate movie of oh you guys you guys went the wrong went to the wrong place at the wrong time precisely you come out of the city and went to the wrong place go back to the city folk exactly actually brings us to race with the devil which is a 1975 american action horror film directed by jack starlett written by west bishop and lee frost and starring peter fonda warren oates loretta swit and our own laura parker if you're interested in laura parker about uh, how her thoughts about race with the devil is listen to our interview with her she mentions it and if this was the second of three films fonda and oates were starring together the hired hand from 1971 was the first and 92 in the shade from 1975 was their third Race with the Devil is a hybrid of the horror, action, and car chase genres. So we'll do is cut to the trailer of Race with the Devil and be right back. Two men on a dream vacation. What the hell are they doing? I'm not sure you think they killed her. Back! Frank, they've seen us. And get trapped. In an unbelievable nightmare. Why? What's wrong? What are you guys up to? 20th Century Fox presents Race the Devil. We saw somebody murdered. What? Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. They're chasing us. Starring Peter Fonda 
and Warren Oates. There was nowhere they could hide. Alice, look what was stuck to the back window. It's some kind of message. Witchcraft. Witches! There was no one they could trust. Well, did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? Won't we a trip? Have a good time. Leave this up to me. There was nothing they could do. They followed us all the way from Bandera. They're here right now watching us. But run. with the devil. There's somebody on top. Frank has got to leave. We got to stay in here. Go, go up. Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, Loretta Swift, Lara Parker. Race with the devil. When you race with the devil, you'd better be faster than hell. Hello, welcome back to the Justice Podcast. We're discussing Race with the Devil. Well, my thoughts with Race with the Devil, I actually really like this film. Um, it's, um, I remember, the funny thing about Race with the Devil for me is I didn't realize that it was a theatrical film because the first time I saw this was on CBS movie, Saturday movie. And my mom let me stay up and watch this. And I thought, it, I always thought this was a TV movie. So <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's because it has Loretta Swit in it and Laura Parker and... Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. And even though Peter Fonda is a film actor, he, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he did a TV movie here and there because even though Easy Rider was, you know, I always think of Peter Fonda as Easy Rider. I never really thought of him as a theatrical film actor for some reason in my mind. So, but I quite, I mean, I, I quite like this film because it, again, it's dealing with these people coming from the city and then kind of encroaching on the small town. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing is, what I also like about this film is that when you're watching it, if they kept their minds shut and just let the police deal with it and moved along their way, they probably things would work out differently for them. But for some reason, I mean, they tend to want to get more and more involved and and even though they are reporting a murder or for whatever reason like this, there is this there is this like in deliverance. Since um, I remember Ferris asked me why did you pair these two up because they are like modern modern people coming from the city, thinking they know everything and encroaching in on these communities. And the way that Peter Fonda and Warren Oates talks to the police officer when they don't know that he's involved, I mean, they don't you know they find they, they figure all this out. I mean, I kind of figured it out in the beginning myself, but because you know Archie Armstrong, <laughs> yeah, Archie yeah. Armstrong's going to be part of the conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, and and because you can see him underneath the mask anyway, because he yeah. has a definite look among him. Among him, but you know, for them, you know, for inside the film sort of thing is like they don't know that. Just the way that they're talking to the locals about they know everything and sort of thing, and if they just let things be and just let the community just deal with what the community wants mm -hmm. to deal with, they probably would have been a little bit better. I mean, I mean, the women screaming is a bit much. This is before women were able to defend themselves. <laughs> you got a lot of women <laughs> screaming and stuff. For, for, all, for quite, all the, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. 
I was quite happy when Ginger got hung on the hung on the RV door. <laughs> it was like Ginger was annoying. Was an annoying dog. <laughs> that's that's one thing that would not fly with the new generation is oh my god, they killed a dog. I can't believe this. Just zero stars. Um, no stars. But um but yeah, it, it's funny because for all the um all the things that have been said about how slasher movies hate women slasher movies kind of took the woman from being the damsel in distress to being the one that's going to kick the killer's ass in the end. <laughs> so I, I never felt that, uh, that slasher movies were, I mean, some of them are, you know, there, there's going to be some that are, that obviously hate women. Like if you watch uh, Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper, there is a disdain for women that, that shines through in that movie. But I feel like for the most part, it's almost always a woman that ends up standing up. So she kind of, um, uh, takes everything to a to a new place. Uh, at least when like Halloween uh, comes out and A Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, some of those films. Um, there was a slasher movie that I've been I've been working on. I've been writing and uh, rewriting over the uh, over the last couple of years. And once I get it right, I'll start sending it out to places. But I remember it's it's evolved so much now uh, the, the, that we're, we're gone so far away from the woman just being the damsel in distress that I actually have a scene where the final girl in the beginning of the movie actually squares off and fights the killer before we reveal who it is because it's somebody behind a mask. Um, so yeah, the, the, the days of the, the damsel in distress here are long, long gone. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I also I also kind of understand how, how Ferris uh, felt like, how, why did you uh, pair these two together? Because tonally, these movies are completely different. <laughs> like this is this is a little more silly than Deliverance. Deliverance is very, very serious, very shocking, uh, out there to make a point. This is, yeah, we witnessed a satanic ritual and now the Satanists are chasing us across Texas. You know, this is this is like something you'd expect from like a Roger Corman movie, which maybe part of me kind of thought that again, because Peter Fonda was a, was a Corman guy. So maybe that's why I associated it with that. As far as feeling like it's a TV movie, it did feel like a TV movie at the time. And this was my first viewing of it. I'd never seen it before this. Uh, I always thought it was a TV movie because a lot of those movies where you would be dealing with, uh, you know, the satanic cults and stuff often were uh, TV mm. movies. They were, they weren't theatrical. Um, but I uh, really, really enjoyed it. it no, no, matter, no matter how silly it, it gets at times. And I mean, I, I also miss now because, you know, because of these, I kind of miss that you have uh, Laura Parker and um, uh, I forget the other actress's name. At the Laura Switt. Yes. They're, they're, going, <laughs> they're going to a library and opening up dusty old books. And it just works so much better than, oh, well, let me Google it real quick. Oh yeah. There's our answer. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so much better that way. Cause it, it adds a little bit of mystery to it and you get to, you, you see the book as they're flipping pages and they come across, uh, they come across these, these old, you know, these old, uh, art, you know, uh, these old sketches Rude. and stuff and it looks PC. creepy. And I feel like that's something that's missing now. And I think that's why a lot of these movies now go, Hey, let's set it in the seventies. Let's set it in the eighties. Because we we might have you know the cell phone might have made our lives a little too easy in these situations because oh okay yeah apparently this is from a satanic cult and yada 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 and the scene's over in two seconds there's no tension, um, you know uh, 
but yeah, I, I absolutely love the cast too. I like Peter Fonda. It was cool. Uh, R.G. Armstrong to me uh, is prune face from the 1990 Dick Tracy. That's who I yeah. always see him as. Um, and immediately, even the way he's acting in the scene where he's introduced as the sheriff, you kind of get the idea that, okay, he's, he's in on whatever's going on. But then, you know, as I thought about it, as someone who's seen a lot of these B movies and has seen R.G. Armstrong in a lot of these movies, I'm like, he's definitely in on it. <laughs> I think yeah. look who's happened. I think look what's happened to Rosemary's baby. I think also had a, a sheriff who was in on it or something like yeah. that. It's been a while since I've seen that, but. but overall, I mean, I guess what this, I guess what this has in, <laughs> in um, you know, what's similar with this and deliverance is that all, all the locals are really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> They're all missing teeth. <laughs> all the Satan, all the Satan is like whatever the whatever deal they're making with Satan is not good dentistry. <laughs> I getting that as a as a you know part of yeah. Where, whereas in both movies, the city folk are mostly mostly pretty attractive. John Voight, Burt Reynolds, uh, and and this Laura Parker is beautiful. Yeah. uh like uh yeah so i haven't watched dark shadows in a long time so it's it, what when i saw her come on screen here i was like wow she is distractingly beautiful um so yeah you get you know peter peter fonda and uh you know laura parker showing up in this movie the sort of city folks always yeah they're they're super gorgeous they're 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 very very well kept and very very metro very uh very clean versus the the dirty ugly toothless uh hillbillies in both movies which <laughs> <The> is... <laughs> locals, <yeah. laughs> i mean the director claimed that he um hired actual satanists to serve as cultist extras <laughs> i mean i believe that if you watch the devil's reign they uh anton levey apparently was uh was working on that so i'm, I'm not surprised they hired actual satanists i mean what does that entail in 1976 though uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I totally believe that. I believe they, they probably did that. And I believe there were probably a lot of them down in the Texas area during that time. You know, the whole there's probably no no more than no more or less than there ever have been. Um, mm. But, yeah, I could see I mean, that. the only thing I mean, I guess it's kind of funny when I was watching. I mean, I really I enjoy watching this film and um, Ferris is young younger um so he um but he actually enjoyed it as well but i think i know i think what makes this film even more enjoyable is the car chasing and i and i like that element of it because it's like when these cars are flipping over stuff like that they're flipping over i mean these <laughs> men are like putting their lives at risk it's like and i quite there's like no, that there's no cgi here dude this is uh these, these are actual cars flipping on the highway uh, i did kind of feel like duel at certain points uh yeah. like toward, towards the end i did kind of get that vibe like uh like like in like in duel um uh as far as it yeah um i guess you could kind of also compare it a little bit to to mad max fury road though not on the uh not as well made as fury road but you you know you have this pretty constant chase it's not you know it's not always happening but it's happening pretty you know you you do get your your little breathable moments but this uh, this has a lot of a lot of cool action sequence, a lot of cool action chase sequences for the seventies. You know, it's not as good as like the French Connection, but it works um, for the purposes of what it, of what it's doing. Uh, Peter Fonda is always fun to watch, uh, and I you know he's 
yeah it's very odd odd looking as well odd looking but not you know it's weird because he does at times look like his father but then at other times not it's really really yeah. strange because there are points where you, where you look at him and you're like oh he's definitely uh henry fonda's kid and then in other shots it's yeah he he does look a little strange it's from certain angles he's definitely his father's son I mean, this is another one of these films that's direct, um, directed by an actor who turned director. Because Jack Star is in, like, um, oh, what is it, that Mel Brooks film, Blazing Saddles. Yeah, he... He's yeah. In a, he, but before he's, this, he made he made Cleopatra Jones. I think he's in this, too, actually, isn't he? I think he's one of the... Yeah, he's, yeah, he's one of the gas station attendants. I don't okay, know he's gas the station attendants. Okay. I don't know if it's the one with the cat where he's missing the tooth. I don't know if that's... <laughs> but but yeah, um, he, yeah, he did direct Cleopatra Jones, and I'm looking now. What else has he done? A Small Town in Texas. I know he directed that. But a lot of his stuff takes place in Texas. So obviously, he's a good old boy from Texas. So The Losers. Oh, he, he did the, uh, the final chapter of Walking Tall, which I... <laughs> So I, that one I did not know about. I didn't realize there were three Walking Tall movies. I, I thought it was just... I know there was... I, uh, yeah, I knew there was two. Well, I, I knew that there was a, the, an original and a remake. I didn't know the original had any sequels. So I'm going to have to... Oh, I'll check those out eventually. I had no idea. I just... Uh, apparently, he directed the third one in, in that series. No idea. And he also directed a couple of... Um, oh, Dukes of Hazard episodes as well. Which makes perfect sense with the, the tone of this movie. It makes perfect sense that he would be directing episodes of Dukes of Hazard. But he looked like he did a lot of those, um, you know, biker movies as well, like Hell's Angels on Wheels. He stars in The Born Losers, Angels from Hell. Hell, yeah, a Bloody lot of Devil. Corman stuff. Uh, <laughs> a yeah. lot of Corman, a lot of Corman movies. He he made a lot of those, which is probably predominantly what I know him from, is seeing a lot of those, uh, a lot of those B movies. Uh, the trip, I think, yeah, he was he was in the trip with um, uh, with uh, I think he was with Dennis Hopper in that one. Grizzly two, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Grizzly, Grizzly two was. Uh... Wait, he was in Grizzly two. Peter Fonda yeah. was. No, Jack Scarrett did the director. Oh, Jack Scarrett. Okay, okay. Uh, oh, all right. I was talking about Peter Fonda being in a lot of. Uh, okay. A lot of the Corman movies. Jack Starrett, I'm not too familiar with a lot of his work outside of this and, and Cleopatra Jones and, uh, um, and and his stuff with Mel Brooks. But yeah, Peter Fonda, uh, he did a lot of a, a lot of Corman movies, and that's predominantly where I know him from. That's that's who I was talking about when I uh, when I said that he uh, late 60s, early 70s. He was doing a lot of that stuff uh, with Dennis Hopper and with. Um, um, well, they wanted him for Kill Bill, didn't they? Didn't that Quentin Tarantino originally wanted him for Kill Bill instead of I think Dave Carradine? Yeah, apparently. Really? There was talk about that at one point. Huh. That's odd because you'd think you'd want David Carradine because of the uh, the connection to to Kung Fu. Hmm. Huh. I yeah. had no idea. I I thought that as well, but I was reading. Um, it's only because I was watching Kill Bill the other day. And um, and I was watching the extras, and and you saying that they they approached Peter Fonda at one point. 
So that that's that's puzzling to me. But I I mean I suppose if he saw something in it that uh or if he saw something in Peter Fonda that made him think he would be uh he would be good in the David Carradine role, then hey, go for it. Who am I, who am I to you know uh to question ten, uh, Quentin Tarantino? But I I would have maybe it's because maybe maybe he didn't think of um the David Carradine part is maybe it was rewritten just as the boss guy instead of like a kung fu expert then we got david carradine maybe reworked it slightly that way yeah maybe that's for, for, that, maybe for that's his character so yeah that's very possible maybe Tar- like that. tarantino i would not put that past him so because i know he does a little bit of rewrites on to to fit the actors that he that he ends up casting so if i know sometimes he does that so but then again this is this is the guy who when he was making Jackie Brown had the op De Niro wanted the role that went to Robert Forster and mm-hmm. Quentin went, no, no, no. I want Forster in the role, not De Niro. And who would have, who would have made that choice in 1996? Yeah. Um, and De Niro ended up playing a supporting role. So, you know, who mm-hmm. knows? Uh, it, it, I could totally see Tarantino just completely, you know, pulling, uh, pulling something and going, no, 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 I'm going to switch this up and I'm just going to turn it into David Carradine. Maybe it was just the boss, like you said. Yeah. And then, you know, then, because then he could bring in the third, because if you didn't, if you realize it, I guess it would make more sense because Kill Bill, I mean, you don't see David Carradine to Kill Bill 2 anyway. That's true. Wait, yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe that's the reason why, maybe that's, he was reworking that at that point while he was doing Kill Bill 1. Maybe, yeah. Maybe he found out at that point that, yeah, shit. Because the only thing we get from the only thing we get from David Carradine is a phone call, where it's like, "Oh, don't kill her yet," or whatever. We can't let her go out this way, and that's all. All we get is a phone call. Really, that's all. That's and needs to get him in silhouette. So maybe the character wasn't fleshed out as the way you know they fleshed him out differently. I mean, I, I yeah, you know what? I, I didn't even I didn't even think of that because I I guess I've always watched them back to back. I didn't realize, yeah, Carradine doesn't well, show up until the end of the second. Yeah, and there because it's, it's two. There's a year and a half between the release of each film, so so it's possible. Yeah, it's possible in that time period, or or while he was filming, mm-hmm. negotiations fell apart with Peter Fonda, and he was like, okay, well, I'll just rework this to make it uh, to make David Carradine the boss. Yeah, so I'll I'll, rec- I'll, re- I'll do the first movie, and while I'm doing that, I can rework the second script. You know, yeah. that's possible. So it's just one of those things that the, the casting is so perfect that mm. I I never I never thought it could be anybody else. But mm. then you hear that you know uh, the original uh, the original Don Corleone was going to be Orson Welles, and and you think to yourself, how how could it have been anybody but Marlon Brando ever at any point? But actually, I could see. I get. I don't know though. I could see a younger Orson Welles doing. I don't know if I could see Ernest and Gallo or Orson Welles doing it. Touch of evil wine commercials. Yeah, I can see him. I can see that one. Touch I'm not, by by yeah. by the seventies. I think he was selling wine on TV commercials, yeah. and that was a different Orson Welles than what we. Well, by, know, the, his, by the by the seventies, he was he was doing whatever whatever gig paid him, so he could. Uh, put the money towards his next movie while he was crashing on Peter Bogdanovich's couch. Yeah. Apparently he was just living in Bogdanovich's place rent-free because he was he's perennially broke. Um, and at one point 
uh, needed to uh, had the money to do some shoots on the other side of the wind. Went to Gary Graver's house unexpected, going, hey, 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 come on, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go shoot this movie this weekend. He's, well, I can't, I took this job editing a porno. So Orson Welles sit there and edited the porn scene that Gary Graver was supposed to do. And uh, so Gary Graver could just come do that. But yeah, supposedly, and I mean, I don't know how much of the story is true. Supposedly Welles was just constantly broke, doing whatever gig would pay him. Uh, was crashing on Peter Fonda's couch, but basically ordering him around without paying any rent or anything, which just shows the fondness that <laughs> that um, that Bogdanovich must have had for Wells at this time, because this is the guy who made Citizen Kane. He's like, you know, I'm I'm gonna no, I'm totally gonna let you take over my house, not pay me rent, and just do whatever the hell you want, come and go as you please, take over my take over an entire room to be your your personal editing bay and just lay there like a lummox on the couch most of the day but uh, okay but you're orson wells um, orson Welles always reminds me of like picasso that no one had no one had any appreciation to after he died then all of a sudden it's like lady of shanghai and the magnificent Amberons and citizen kane and the uh, um, touch of evil all of a sudden it's like now they're considered like these fantastic work of art, but when they were when they came out, they flopped. Yeah, every single one of his films flopped. It's kind of shame, he, really, because now when you watch them now, it's like, oh my god, this guy was so far ahead of his time. Well, they were they were the movies that like people who had like a reverence for cinema really really liked, but that was such a small community. And I mean, what you know, when you think about you know, he died in what, 85 at that point was, you know, the VHS boom. So suddenly, you know, you can go to the video store and you can rent Citizen Kane. You can rent the Magnificent Ambersons. You can rent uh, Lady from Shanghai. You can rent Touch of Evil. You can take him home and okay. Yeah, there you go. But he was doing movies like, uh, uh, what was that? Uh, Necromancy. Uh, like he was like doing like these one-off roles in like these cheap horror movies at that point. Because he's just doing whatever he can to get to get his next movie made. He's like the consummate artist, and that's why other you know artists appreciated him. Because yeah, he was a talented filmmaker, and I think people saw that. I think people knew how great an actor he was because he kept making, you know, these great Shakespearean films like Othello, like Macbeth, uh, Chimes at Midnight, and he's a lot like Kenneth Branagh today. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, who I, I feel I just saw the trailer the other day for the haunting in venice and i remember it brought to mind that i when i watched murder on the orient express his version of it i felt like there was a um a better movie in there that maybe got cut out for time and then when i watched death on the nile i realized that this is around the time he made belfast and it kind of felt like watching death on the nile while it's a perfectly okay serviceable film it's not it, it felt like he doesn't have his heart into it because I felt like he he knew Belfast was coming up. And I feel like he's kind of fallen into this. I'm going to do one for you. You meaning the studio. I'm going to do a movie that you want me to make. That's going to make you money. Because I want you to fund this movie for me that I want to make. And that's kind of what I'm starting to feel is kind of happening with his career. Because he's doing Death on the Nile. Belfast. Now he's doing another one of these uh, Hercule Poirot films. And who knows what the next one, maybe the next one will be something really personal that he wants to do. 
We kind of did that through his whole career anyway. I mean, if yeah. you look at Henry V, and then you got Dead Again, which is a yeah. huge box office, and much to do about nothing. And then when he did it, you know, when he's doing his That's Shakespearean fair. stuff. But That's the only fair. thing so, I find with, 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 with the thing I find with Kenneth Branagh is um, his films lack heart. I, I watched them and I think okay, everything looks good. Everything films beautifully. All the actors are doing a fantastic job. But I never see the passion in any of his stuff. They always lack the passion. I saw it in Henry V and I saw it in Hamlet and I saw it in Belfast. But a lot of the times when he's doing these other movies that are just like, like, like it's what I was saying about Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile, it felt like it was like, okay, I'll do your... I'll do your Hercule Poirot movie, but you know, I need money for Belfast. So if you could, you know, open up the purse strings for that, I'll I'll make I'll make your your Agatha Christie movie that you I'll probably have by numbers before I do an original masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I feel like, yeah, but like you said, maybe that's how it's always been with him. Cause yeah, he did he did kind of go through that because immediately after um after Hamlet, he did uh, what was that thriller? Uh, he he did like this thriller with him and Robert Duvall. Wait, I don't know if he directed that though. Well, he did Frank. He did Frankenstein at one point. He did Frankenstein in '94. Yeah, that the that Niro. Was, yeah. yeah. That that lacked a that lacked something. I'm not quite sure what that lacked. Thor. He, you know, he oh, did. Yeah. yeah, he did Thor. You forget that's a Branham movie because it doesn't feel like a Branham movie. It feels like. A guy, uh, a guy who's looking for a paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> that, that too lacked heart. So, but um, yeah, interesting. Just, it's funny, yeah, because it was just serviceable. It, it did what it needed to do. It made a ton of money for 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 Marvel, and then he went on to do, you know, it's the the joke that uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon make in uh, uh, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. He's like, well, I'm sorry if I'm taking you away from whatever. Uh, you know, whatever indie darling movie you got to do. No, dude, you got to do a safe picture. Then you do the, you got to do a blockbuster. Then you do a safe picture. Then you do a blockbuster. Then you do a safe picture. That kind of feels like it's been with what Brian has done his entire career. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps them relevant. Yeah. Um, you know what I found quite interesting is that Warren Oates and Peter Fonda are really good friends. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, they they love working together. together. Oh, yeah. They've done three films together. And they loved working together. And the reason why they did Race for the Devil is because they could work together again. It's always nice to hear that. Mm -hmm. There's, um, if you get the Blu-ray, uh, Race for the Devil comes on the Blu-ray with um, Dirty Larry Dirty Mary. and Crazy Mary. Dirty, Dirty, Mary, Dirty Mary and Crazy, Crazy Larry. Larry. Yeah, that, that's actually how I got it. And I've never seen Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry either, but that's one of those movies that's legendary. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I could get both of them in one shot right here, and then you know, if we if we ever do that for the podcast, I have it, or some night if I just want to pop it in, I can I can just do that. But uh, it's a good. I mean, it's a good part of the those action car chase kind of films. Well, I mean, it is mentioned in Death Proof quite a lot. That he was um, hot pursuit. Warner Oates also was in. Uh, he was in Two Lane Blacktop, which is another great. Uh, uh, another another great road movie. Um, mm. what was he in that? Let me look that up real quick. He was JTO, uh, GTO in that. Um, so yeah, he he kind of had a they kind of had a fondness for these road movies. That's it's something else. I you know maybe did I, do a lot of um horse horse opera movies as well, cowboy films. That I, 
For some reason, I always picture him in cowboy gear. Yeah, he's in a lot. Yeah, I'm looking through. It looks like a lot of movies that sound like they might be cowboy movies, uh, which I would not have seen. I've seen some of the police dramas that he's been in. I really want to see The Border, which is the uh, 82 movie uh, with him and Jack Nicholson and Harvey Keitel. Oh, I've seen that. That's a good film. I I do want to see it. I can. uh, I got to find a copy of that. Um, uh, Yeah, The Wild Bunch. He's in The Wild Bunch. I've seen yeah, the, the wild heat. bunch. That's what I'm thinking. I've seen in the heat of the night, and he's fantastic in that. Uh, Stripes with Bill Murray, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Two Lane Blacktop, 1941. So yeah, uh, the shooting. So yeah, there's there's quite a few cowboy ride the high country. So we're getting into a lot of cowboy movies, which I have not seen a lot of his westerns. He's even in. Oh, uh, he did uh, a lot of westerns on TV and TV as well. He did Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, <laughs> Raw Hide. He even Wanted did a Western directed by Peter Fonda called The Hired Hand, and I've never seen that. I just added that to my watch list. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess he and Peter Fonda were uh, were friends. Warren Oates is somebody that I never really went into, that went too into into depth with. Like I never watched the movie because Warren Oates is in it. He would always be a supporting character and everything I'm watching. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now that I know he, yeah, Peter Fonda stars and directs that one. Oh, and Doran is in that one too. I'll check that one out. I do got to find a copy of The Border, though. I really want to see that. I've been uh, meaning to check that one out for a little while. If I can find a cheap uh, cheap copy somewhere, it doesn't look like it's streaming on any of the services that I have. So either way, I'm going to have to... If I'm, I'm not- going to spend the money, I'm going to get I'm going to get a DVD or Blu-ray out of it. I'm not going to rent it. <laughs> it's, it's a good film, actually. Um, that's part of that Jack Nicholson 70s collection where there's a lot of good films. That, um, the, 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 the Last Detail... That the last detail is another one that I've not seen that I want to. Um, yeah, Nicholson in the late seventies and early eighties was phenomenal. Uh, I mean, throughout the eighties, even. Mm. You know, uh, uh, like Ironweed was really good, and that's a movie that nobody talks about anymore. I remember Ironweed. I've seen that. It was uh, him and Meryl Streep. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the Jack Nicholson, um, those earlier films before, just before he reaches Jack Nicholson's stature, are very, very good. Yeah. Especially the ones just before um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So, uh, like the Missouri Breaks, Carnal Knowledge, yeah. a lot of that stuff, yeah. Well, and, and even before yeah. that, he was doing all the Corman movies, because he he's... Um, He's in the Raven with uh, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, and Peter Lorre. He's the Terror with Boris Karloff. The dentist uh, and uh, little shop of horrors. <laughs> yeah, or he's the uh, he's not the dentist. No, he's the, he's the, uh, no, he's the, uh, the, the crazy yeah, patient that, that Bill Murray plays <laughs> in the remake. So yeah, he, he did a lot of Corman stuff. There's um, a story that Robert Downey Sr. I've heard him uh, tell the story that uh, he walked into he walked onto the set of some Corman movie because um, he had uh, Jack Nicholson was trying to break in as a writer. And he saw Nick, he met Nicholson. He assumed he was the writer. And he's like, oh no, I'm playing this role. He goes, wait, aren't you a writer? Nicholson goes, shh, I'm an actor now. <laughs> Just whatever well, he wrote, he, well, Dad Nicholson wrote the um, script for Head with the Monkeys, that really trippy Monkeys movie. So- so he was one of those guys that he was just like, no, through any means necessary, I'm going to get into this industry. I don't care if I have to break in as an actor. I don't care if I have to break in as a writer. I don't care if I have to go get somebody's coffee. I'm going to do that. 
unfortunately it's a little harder to do that now because getting somebody's coffee you ain't gonna be able to afford an apartment in la on that <laughs> let's have 12 uh, roommates but <laughs> yeah. uh, um yeah i mean i quite like i mean i quite like these little independent kind of film sort of thing you know i, I always quite enjoy those over the big studio sometimes pictures uh, yeah, I, I mostly do. I mostly like these smaller films uh, most of the time over the big, you know, the big studio movies. I do have to ask you, when, when you were rewatching this, were you watching it on the on the Blu-ray? Yep. And was it recently yeah. that you that you rewatched it? I watched it this week. I watched it yesterday. Did it I actually look, did both films yesterday. Did it look like um, the the breasts on the woman that was being sacrificed were like fogged over? Yeah, and that's it. That's, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I thought it was quite funny when they were nude. There were the, the nude satanic worship that all the guys kept their jeans on and all the women were kind of running. But they were, um, but they were, that's why I always thought it was a TV movie because the women's breasts are never shown anyway. They're kind of like, even, even, even when they're dancing around, it's like they're kind of they're so far in the distance because there's no close ups of anything going on. Yeah. So, uh- but this looked even, like it was actually when, like censored, like in a way. And I was like, why would they do that on the on the DVD and Blu-ray? I think I think that's the every time I've seen it, it's been like that. I mean, I know there was like that on TV, but I always I don't I always I don't I never saw it the cinema, of course, but I'm always kind of wondering that that's the reason why I always thought it was a TV movie. Because there's no swearing in this movie whatsoever either. That's true too. What was it rated? Was it PG or something? I can't um, imagine this had an R rating. The rating, well, there's, I, there's no rating thing on here, so I'll look on IMDb real quick. Race with the Devil, 1970. Yeah, yeah, it's a PG movie. PG movie, so maybe that's why. But then, why put that in there in the first place if you're just going to censor it? But it does have a very TV movie cast too. If you're really, you know. When, when you well, Lauren like, Laura Sweat was Mash, wasn't she? Yeah, and uh, Laura Parker was Dark Shadows. R.G. Yeah. Armstrong's just a kind of a journeyman. Warren Oates, like you mentioned, he was in a lot of TV westerns. So yeah, that's a, that's another reason. Why well, Laura know. Parker, just before she did this, was um, David Banner's wife in the first episode of Incredible Hulk. Oh, that's right. So. You know, because she, I mean, Dark Shadows finished in 72, so. And again, you know, so she's Paul, making her TV rounds. Paul Maslansky, uh, the producer of this, went on to produce Police Academy, which is another movie that has a bunch of women uh, dancing around topless around a fire <laughs> for a completely <laughs> different reason. <laughs> They're all throwing their bras into the fire. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I quite like, I mean, I, I think it also gives a nod a little bit to, um, whatchamacallit, a nod to Rosemary's Baby, where it's like, everyone that you're seeing in the background comes in at the end, and it's like, here they all here they're all coming forward to, like, sacrifice them in their in their camper van their RV <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's, like a cur- it's like a curtain call for saying this at the end it, yeah, it kind of was it kind of was, <laughs> and yeah I, maybe that, that's, that's, a, that's another that's another thing. It did kind of feel like that Rosemary's Baby sequel at times. This is a lot better made than that movie was. Yeah. Uh, that that Rosemary's Baby uh, TV sequel was a train wreck. Um, 
but this uh this was actually pretty enjoyable i uh, this is a a much better made uh little satanic sacrifice movie um I mean, they made a lot of stupid mistakes though as well but they were but even though you're watching and you know they're making stupid mistakes they were it wasn't irritating you know no, sometimes this... you know when you watch a film and they're making stupid mistakes and you're going this is they're, now they're irritating me i was never irritated by this cast by by any of their decisions i think that's the reason is the the cast the, the cast is so good that even when something happens that is kind of dumb it 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 works I mean, because there are some things you're kind of watching. It's just like, you know, you know, like they're having that conversation at the gas station and the back windows out because it's been crushed in. And they decide that oh, they notice that the person's eardwigging. So they shut like the, the vinyl curtain so they don't can hear them. They're like, what are you doing? Well, he can't hear us now. The vinyl curtain shut. Uh, and he, and even that initial that initial scene. Well, there, you know, he he notices in the binoculars that they that they spotted us, and he's still telling his wife to be quiet. No, don't tell her to be quiet. You're wasting time now. They're coming after you. Jump in the RV and go, go now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I was watch, I was actually watching that, and Ferris looks at me. She goes, "Why is it always a woman screaming? Honey, what are you doing? <laughs> Get back inside! What?" So, are you coming in? <laughs> Shut up! Wow. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, even though there's a lot of like craziness that kind of goes on in this movie, I find it really, really entertaining. I can watch this film all the time. I don't know what it is. This definitely has some rewatchability to it. I could definitely like more so than Deliverance. Deliverance is a little heavy to watch a lot of times. Yeah, like it is. if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna, you know discuss these two movies as far as a pairing maybe you know maybe this would be the b-side you know because it's not as well made as deliverance but if you're looking for a movie that's just like more fun this is definitely the more fun watch than deliverance between the two i mean i remember i remember um i'm when when i interviewed laura parker and i mentioned race for dev i go it's one of my favorite movies she goes really (laughs) (laughs) yeah Wasn't she on a uh, uh, on an episode of Colcheck the Night Stalker too? Was that her the witch episode? Yeah, she did. Yeah, because that was Dan Curtis, wasn't it? Yeah, Dan, so, Dan Curtis produced that. And for some reason, for the longest time, I thought Race to the Devil was a Dan Curtis production. For some reason, I don't know why. Because he was doing a lot of movies feel- like that. He, he was doing a lot of movies yeah. like that. Yeah, burnt offerings and all the other stuff that was coming out around that time. All they all had that kind of similar feel to it as well. I guess if Karen Black popped up, I mean, <laughs> fantastic. I was half expecting her to. Yeah, with her black eyeliner. Oh, well, I, I see guess a lot of her this year probably... too because I've been, I've been watching a lot of movies. And I've I've run into a lot of Karen Black too. So I just watched uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef movie that she was in called uh, uh, The Diamond Thieves, where she is the uh, the woman who's taking care of an injured Lee Van Cleef after he gets uh, he gets shot during a. Uh, during a diamond heist but yeah i'm sorry go ahead i was just like going off on a tangent again like we gotta oh i love i love karen black so do i <laughs> at some at some point we're gonna have to cover come back to the five and dime jimmy dean jimmy dean um i could see if mark patton's willing to come on we'll probably cut that okay off. cut that part out but yeah <laughs> i can check <laughs> Because the reason why I like to cover that is because it's got some of my favorite. I mean, first you got Mary Kay Place, and I mean, Mar- not Mary, not Mary Kay Place. Um, 
Kathy Bates in her first movie. Mm. And then you got Sandy Dennis, which I love Sandy Dennis. I think she's fantastic. Karen Black. And then you got, um, and then of course Cher in like one of her best acting roles, really. And it's just like, that's one of those things that, because it's um, a stage production that's been filmed by Robert Altman, you just can't go wrong with it. And Mark Patton is brilliant in that. I mean, I mean, yeah. I don't, I mean, nothing against Mark Patton, but, you know, he was being, um, you know, he said he was typecast because of Freddie's Black back for being, for Freddie's 2, Nightmare, no, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddie's Revenge. He said he was being typecast for the character he played in that, but I had to sit there and say that every film I saw him in before that, he always played a gay character. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> um, have you seen the documentary uh, Scream Queen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I saw it with uh, I saw it with him him there in person at a film festival a couple of years ago, and I think they mentioned that even there. I think they mentioned it even in that documentary. Uh, yeah. That, he always I mean, he always he always appeared quite effeminate characters. I mean, I know I know four or five things I've seen him do, and they're always. I mean, he's very good in them. I'm not, you know, nothing against, you know, against him as an actor, but they're all tend to be someone who's a bit effeminate or gay or or alluded to that sort of thing. So, well, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street too. It's 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 alluded. It's very heavily alluded to, but yeah, it's it's yeah, you know, uh, and, and sadly in the '80s, I guess that was something that that could still injure your career because I. I well, I think, I think, yeah, in the 80s, I mean, during the AIDS epidemic and all the other stuff, I mean, I guess there's, there's a lot of homophobia going on at the time. Now, I mean, I, I, with the gay, I mean, now they're talking about that straight actors can't play gay characters anymore. They only gay actors can play gay characters. So I'm not sure how that's all going to pan out eventually because if I, I can understand, I can understand it. But what if a gay actor wants to play a straight character? Should they be allowed? That that's where you're gonna start getting into a lot of slippery slopes here. Mm. Like I, I yeah. like you know what? When it comes to like white actors in blackface or yellowface, I absolutely get why. I, yeah, that, I get yeah, that. That one absolutely. I'm you yeah, know I might definitely. have I might I might like the Charlie Chan movies, uh, but yeah, we're not uh yeah, that's definitely not something we should do anymore. Uh, I guess but, we won't be covering the Robert Downey Jr. Thund- that thunder. Tropic movie. thunder. <laughs> but I, you know, it, it's weird because like a year or so ago, there was a little bit of a, of a backlash towards him for it because like the younger generation found it. Like Robert Downey Jr. was in blackface in this movie. Like, yeah, but he was playing an actor who was playing a guy in blackface. Yeah, and it, precisely. And. The, and, and because the he was stupid. Of, yeah, the yeah, the, the point was, was he's a moron who doesn't yeah. re- he's Ted Danson. <laughs> he's Ted Danson in 1992 is what that is. He's making yeah. a point and I, I guess the point went over your heads because the the yeah. point wasn't oh how cool is it that I'm in blackface. The point is this character's a moron. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I thought that was I thought he did fantastic. I thought found them funny. I thought actually he was the best thing in that movie. Yeah, he really. Is. He is. So the and movie does. Di- the movie has a lot of dipping going on. It there's some funny bits, and then it kind of dips and gets a bit boring, and then up it comes again with his acting in it. So, but I, I feel like a lot of a lot of people need to learn like context. 
why something yeah. is the way it is. Like it, it wasn't a movie that was uh, that was uh, saying that blackface is good. He's making fun of the fact that this guy who thinks blackface is cool is a complete moron. Like you need to understand when villains do something, it's not an endorsement of of what they're doing. Mm. Well, I think. Well, I think with something like that, I think a lot of people jump on the bandwagon without actually seeing the film as well. So you kind of get that going on. It's like, oh, they hear like a little snippet, and it's like, oh. you know, it's a bit like, um, like a, sometimes like you see like a film that's banned for whatever reason because it's offended somebody. And then, but then when you watch the film and you see everything in its context, it's not offensive. But if you take something like a little bit of out, then it is offensive. But if you see it in the context of the film, it's not offensive because it's actually talking about how wrong this is instead of like perpetrating about how great this is. Like that movie uh, Cuties that that was on Netflix a couple of years ago that everybody made a big deal about. And then when you actually watch the movie, it's like, no, it's making the opposite point of what you're accusing it of making. It's yeah, actually precisely. on your side, but you can't. But you are so into your beliefs that you can't see past it. Precisely, it's about how wrong this all is. How this yeah. is not acceptable, and all this other stuff. It wasn't like saying, "Oh, this is how things should be." I mean, I mean, I am surprised, you know, in the current, you know, the current um, climate that we're in, that no one's ever picked up, you know, what Kids by Larry Clark. <laughs> Now, that see. film is wrong that film is wrong in every single way <laughs> you know so there are movies like that that when you when you watch it you're like ooh, this kind of feels a little scuzzy and that's why i felt <laughs> that way when i i felt that way when i saw it when it first came out you yeah. know before and i remember seeing it going and everyone's you know lauding about how brilliant this film is and how you know what's what an artistic and art you know artful film this was and i'm watching it going mm-hmm. where are these kids parents that's what I was thinking. It's like, ooh, I'm not sure if I, you know, you know, for whatever reason. I mean, and I'm not saying it's a bad film. I'm just saying it made me it made me feel uncomfortable all the way through it. So that that was definitely... I think that oh. I just think anyone who felt comfortable watching that film, I think you might want to um watch put them on your neighborhood watch list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like like to, like to me movies like that make me more uncomfortable than every horror movie you could ever throw at me mm. you know like i could i could sit here and watch texas chainsaw massacre 50 times i know that's not real i know that that's not going to happen i know that i'm not going to you know the odds of me making a wrong turn somewhere in texas and ending up lunch meat for leatherface and his family <laughs> are practically non-existent uh yeah but what, but there are people who have views where, like like you said, if you think the movie Kids is something that's, you know, absolutely okay, everything in that movie is fine, it's an endorsement, mm. then yeah, okay, maybe maybe you're somebody I don't want around. Mm. And if you go to someone's house and every time you go for dinner, let's watch a movie, they bring out kids, it's like, <laughs> you might want to avoid going that person. This person's not a movie, a film finet, you know, a finishiato or whatever. It's like you're like, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> this is my favorite all-time movie. Picked posters of kids all over his yard. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, that would, that would certainly be uh, that would certainly be a little bit of a red flag. Uh, it's like okay, I'm gonna slowly leave now. <laughs> uh.
But um, well, I guess we should um, rate Race for the Devil. So how many stars would you give Race for the Devil? Uh, probably about four, because like I said, it's an enjoyable movie. It's not perfect. Um, I, it's definitely a movie that, you know, I'm, I'm glad I bought the DVD because I will absolutely rewatch this at some point. Um, I'm glad I saw it because I, I did really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like Peter Fonda. I like Laura Parker. Um, I like R.G. Armstrong. I like, I like Warren Oates. So I really, uh, really glad I finally got to, got to check this out. And like you, I thought, I thought going in, it was going to be a TV movie. So I, I had no idea that it was a, it was a legit theatrical film. Um, yeah, four stars. Definitely check it out. It's a fun movie. Uh, not as heavy as Deliverance. Probably more more uh, more on the rewatchability scale than Deliverance is. Deliverance is definitely the better movie of the two, though. But Race with the Devil is not exactly a slouch. It's just a fun, cheesy B movie that has you know a similar similar setup. Mm-hmm. City folks going into the wrong part of a small town. Surprisingly enough, though, um, it was made for one point seven four five million dollars, and it grossed eighteen million. Good seventy-five. I mean, good because so it was a box. It was a box office success. Yeah, eighteen times its budget. Yeah, uh, made made eighteen times its budget. It's definitely a success. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, it's it's a fun movie. I'm, I'm I absolutely go go watch it. It's a fun, cheesy. Turn off your brain and watch this goofy ass movie kind of movie. And it has a sixty four percent rating based on fourteen reviews, so that's not bad. That's not Ratings bad is normally five point five. That's not too bad. There there was talk of a remake at one point. Um, but, um Kevin Smith says he um has said Race for the Devil was a strong influence on the film red state i could see that and the film also has the basis for the tomo language for the film kasagu released in 1981 and drive angry starring dickless cates released in 2011 i've never seen drive angry uh i think that's uh it's fun is it yeah i I recommend it watch it it's it's a fun film todd farmer and um um What's his name? The guy who made the Valentine's Day, uh, uh, Mind Bloody Valentine uh, remake, right? I generally oh, like okay. his stuff. Let me let me look real quick. I think it's them. I forget the guy's uh, name. Watch, watch Drive Crazy. I highly recommend it. Oh, better Patrick, than Ghost Rider. Yeah, Patrick Lussier. That's 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 the guy's name. Yeah, he's a guy who started out under Wes Craven, and um, yeah, and I think Todd Farmer wrote it. Who wrote uh my bloody valentine uh the uh, the remake to that and i think he wrote jason x which yeah he wrote yeah. jason I, x. I like jason i like jason x <laughs> so do i because i think jason x is is in on the joke more than any other movie in that friend well except yeah. for maybe part six uh it it, it uh, you know it's like the like the kids say now it, uh he understood the assignment you know <laughs> yeah i like jason x i can't i can't fault jason x whatsoever the, the, the i know everyone slags it off but i loved it it's got a tiny budget yeah it overcomes it though because it's it's genuinely entertaining i mean does it make sense how all these kids are piloting a spaceship no but i still enjoy it <laughs> does it matter <laughs> also no <Yep. laughs> the fact that the first time i saw it 
I'm sitting there with uh, with my girlfriend, and these two kids start having sex, and that's when you see Jason's thawing fingers like start to move. I was like, yes, this movie gets the absurdity of this. My girlfriend's like, so wait, them ha- he no dead Jason knows they're having sex, and he's waking up so he can kill them. Like, yes, it's perfect, totally perfect. And then by the time you get to the uh, the scene where the um, uh, you get the, the two hologram girls and they're they're both uh, they're both in their underwear and they're like, hey, want to smoke some pot or have a beer or how about premarital sex? They both take their tops off. We love premarital sex. Cuts to something else. When you cut back, he's got one in a he's got each one in a uh, in a um, sleeping bag. In a sleeping bag, and he's using one to beat the other to death. I was like, this movie's perfect. This movie understands everything that you you know that 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 the friday the 13th movies are meant to be and i for the life of me can never understand why pete why why so many people dislike it i'm like it's i love no, i love no it, it doesn't I, take it seriously but who the hell can take jason Voorhees seriously yeah i like i mean i even like the kills the kills are really well oh, the, done like the, the girl be the girl being sucked through the hole in the, in the spaceship it's like uh the, the girl getting her face shoved in the uh uh the 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 nitro liquid then, yeah, yeah liquid nitrogen and then getting her face bashed perfect uh, i love perfect. that movie i love jason x and here we are on a tangent favorite. about jason x <laughs> i know <laughs> well my my ready for a race of the devil is a solid four i you know i can watch this anytime i've seen it many many times um when i found out this was on blu-ray a couple a couple years ago i was so excited i had to go buy it <laughs> i was like to me this is like you know there's a couple films that i really really love that i've kind of i'm not re- i'm not embarrassed by telling it but i do show to people more frequently and that this is one of them the other one is angel High school. I love Angel. <laughs> I love Angel. Yeah. I unabashedly love I, Angel too. I've never seen the sequel, so yeah. I gotta see those soon. Uh that that I mean when you tell me um last year about vinegar syndrome coming out with the Blu-ray of that, I I went, I went and bought it that day and it came like three days later and I was like a pig and shit. I was just so happy. <laughs> That's a fantastic, and I've watched that so many times. And anytime anyone comes over and goes, let's watch the movie, I bring out Angel. Angel one an avenging angel of Betsy Russell, you know, before I, I she went on to, to do saw films. I have to, I have to see avenging angel. I have not seen it yet. It's fun. It's not as good as angel, but it is campus Christmas, but the third, third film is a really let down. So unfortunately, but, but I got but, two. So I went and saw both of them at the movie theaters when they came out. So I was happy. I guess that brings us to the end of the Literary License Podcast. Um, next week, we'll be doing Lovely Bones by Alice Bold and the film from 2009, which was directed by Peter Jackson. And that will be our book to screen. And part of our America Goes Dark. May will be Crime Has Many Facets. 
And of course, um, Doctor Who will be continuing with the storyline Reign of Terror, um, where basically they're stuck in the French Revolution and it looks like they're all held prisoners and accused of being English spies. And of course, this brings us to Batman the Anime Series, which will come to the the likelihood of Robin's Reckoning, which will hear the origin story of Robin. And of course, we'll be covering two other episodes. It'll be Night of the Ninja and Cat Scratch Fever, which I can assume that's probably Catwoman. And of course, the make <laughs> remake will be Eternal Affairs from 2002, the Hong Kong film, and the American remake, which is The Departed by 2006, um, which was directed by Martin Scorsese. And of course, Eminem, our Monsters and Mad Men for the end of the month will be Sinister from 2012. And we are still here from 2015. So it's good night for myself. Good night, Joe. Good night, everyone. And we'll see you next week for Lovely Bones by Axel Cole and the 2009 film. Yeah.